0: Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Read Smart, the official podcast of the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction. My name is Toby Mundy, and I'm the director of the prize, taking over hosting duties today from our usual host, Razia Iqbal. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. The Read Smart podcast talks to some of the world's leading writers and publishers to explore the world of non-fiction publishing, as well as providing a behind-the-scenes insight into the year's prize journey. The winner of the 2021 Bailey Gifford Prize will be announced on the 16th of November, where they'll be presented with a cheque for £50,000. For the last 22 years, the Bailey Gifford Prize has rewarded the very best in non-fiction writing, spanning fields as diverse as history, current affairs, politics, science, sport, travel, biography, autobiography and the arts. In the run-up to the winner announcement next month, I'm in conversation with our six shortlisted authors, asking them about their lives, enthusiasms and, of course, the reasons why they wrote their shortlisted book. Today, I'm joined by the author John Preston. John is uh, the author of a novel, The Dig, which was uh, based on the archaeological excavation of Sutton Hoo and was turned into a very successful film. And his most recent book prior to the one we're talking about today was A Very English Scandal, which was published to great acclaim in 2016 and turned into a BAFTA award-winning TV series. Uh, He's here today to talk about The Fall, The Mystery of Robert Maxwell, which is shortlisted for this year's prize. John, thank you so much for joining us. No, it's a pleasure. Uh, and congratulations on being shortlisted for the Beda Gifford Prize. Thank you very much. Um, so, look, for those listeners under 40, <laughs> um, tell us about who Robert Maxwell became. And I say became because I want to get into his earlier life a little later on. But he, he who he became, in, he was one of the last of the, the press barons, wasn't he?
1: Yes, Maxwell was a, a big man in every sense. I mean, it's hard to think of anybody in the 20th century, he'd actually journeyed as far from his origins as, as Robert Maxwell. He was born and brought up in this tiny little um, town, really a village in Czechoslovakia, where his parents were dirt poor. I mean, Maxwell shared one pair of shoes with one of his brothers in the winter. Children ran around barefoot in the summer. And Maxwell basically went from total poverty, to becoming one of the richest and most powerful men in the world, and one of the world's leading media barons. But there was, as it were, a kind of hole beneath the waterline water of uh, Maxwell, and uh, the higher he, um, he, tr- he became in the, climbed in the world, the more the floors uh, started to open out, and eventually his entire empire fell apart, and Maxwell, as it were, sank with all hands on board.
0: Famously, was found floating uh, in off the, offshore in the Canary Islands in the proximity of his yacht in 1991. Indeed, and, indeed, yes. Well, we'll come back to that later. Um, but his his early life, well, much of his life was scarred by terrible loss, wasn't it? But his early life was incredibly improbable. Tell us about that Czech childhood a little more, and and when he was born, and 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 his. Uh, that, that that period up until perhaps the invasion of Czechoslovakia
1: well he um as he was one of seven children um and his parents were um jewish and quite religious and maxwell at an early age showed a kind of tremendous gift for ducking and diving and he was selling kind of trinkets to his friends and indeed to his enemies um and When Maxwell was 16, which is in 1939, he leaves the village behind and his family. And he goes off partly to kind of seek his fame and fortune and partly because he wants to get involved with the war, which has just been declared. And indeed, he does. He joins the British army and actually has a very successful war. But whilst he's away, both his parents, three of his siblings and his grandfather all die in Auschwitz. And that's really the prism that you have to look at Maxwell's life through. Um, and he, when he came to Britain, he denied being Jewish and he changed his name four times by the time he was 23. He eventually plumped for the name Robert Maxwell, partly because he thought it sounded quite Scottish and posh, and partly because it didn't have any suggestion of Jewishness about him. And... But having denied being Jewish really for almost all his life, when he finally kind of re-embraced his Judaism, it came with this great kind of banked up tsunami of survivor guilt. And that was one of the things that caused Maxwell's
0: eventual downfall but he was and so you as you say he wasn't born robert maxwell do we actually know his name at his birth he was he was born
1: ludwig hock although he always thought he was he was born jan hock so it's kind of symptomatic of maxwell's extreme identity crisis that he never quite knew what
0: his real name even was and how did how did you go about reconstructing that that early life the life of his up until you know up until he departs Czechoslovakia. How easy was that to do?
1: Well, with a certain amount of difficulty, I mean, you know, there's some information about his early life. And Maxwell's wife, uh, Betty, who he came to treat appallingly in later life, um, actually pieced together quite a lot of um, Maxwell's early life in Czechoslovakia, partly, I think, because she hoped it might make him look more favourably on her although it didn't uh and partly because she was fascinated by what forces had shaped her husband so i had that and there were um there were quite a lot of records particularly of Ma- maxwell's military service um so it was tricky but not insurmountable one of the advantages of maxwell was that he was such a remarkable character that A lot of the people who had rubbed up against him at pretty much all stages of his life, uh, they didn't necessarily write books about him, although quite a few of them did, but they tended to write essays um, or recollections
0: about Maxwell. So they were plainly very useful. Gosh. Um so it once once you encountered him you never forgot him kind of thing. Yeah, I mean I I never actually met
1: Maxwell but I caught the end of Fleet Street in the 1980s by which time Maxwell had bought the Daily Mirror. And you know he he when he wa- I was in a room with Maxwell and when he walked into the room <laughs> everyone stopped talking and you know that's the sort of thing that really doesn't happen very often outside Clint Eastwood movies. Um and he was a figure who inspired extraordinary awe and fear and also ridicule, often it seemed amongst the exact amongst the same people. Um and uh he did have this extraordinary kind of baleful charisma about him.
0: So he get he gets Maxwell gets to Britain, um, and he mm. he becomes Robert Maxwell. Having changed his, as you say, I think he says he changed his name, his religion, his age, his nationality, and his name. Yeah, um, and the latter three times. Yeah. Um. But it, what what does he do then? He 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 has some documents with him from the Springer
1: family, doesn't he? Yeah. Basically, what what happened was that throughout the war, Maxwell had dreamt of trying to get hold of a commodity that he'd be able to secure for next to no money, which would be in huge demand after the war, <laughs> and. One day in 1946, he's sitting in his office in Berlin and he's running a newspaper um, set up by the Allies to reacquaint Berliners with the joys of democracy. And a man comes into his office and says, I've got a terrible problem. Can you help me? This man was the publisher, of the largest publisher of scientific journals in Germany. And throughout the war, nothing had been published, as a result of which he had this huge backlog of scientific journals. And Maxwell's first instinct was to chuck him out, because that was basically Maxwell's first instinct with anybody. Um, And then he suddenly thought to himself, my God, maybe the commodity I've been dreaming of for so long has just landed in my lap, and the commodity was knowledge. And that was unquestionably a brilliant idea and partly funded or largely funded by British intelligence, because Maxwell was also working for British intelligence at the time. He took all this great vast backlog of scientific journals out of Berlin, got them over to London, got them translated, and they became the cornerstone of what by the end of the 1950s was the largest scientific publisher in the world.
0: Gosh, I just want to quickly go back to the war. Of course, mm. I meant to ask you. One of the most extraordinary pictures of in the book is uh, the picture of um, Maxwell being presented with the military cross by Mon- Montgomery. Yes, um, what did he do to earn that? Uh, he did a typical
1: act of kind of really suicidal bravery. Uh, he single-handedly stormed uh, a German uh, a house that was had been occupied by. Um, by Germans and there was a machine gun uh there and he uh Maxwell again this quite entirely characteristic defied uh, an order and single-handedly stormed this house killed the Germans inside it and and reoccupied as it were this crucial bit of territory and um, and he it was presented with his military cross, which is one down from the Victoria Cross. I mean, it was really, you know, a very big thing. Um, and uh, and and it was, you know, Maxwell clearly was an extremely rich man at varying stages of his life. But he had next to no interest in possessions Um and yet the military cross and indeed the photograph of, of Montgomery presenting it to him were two of his most uh, treasured possessions. And, um, you know, if, if people um, were very, very lucky, he would take them into uh, his study in Headington Hill Hall, which was the house he lived in in Oxford, and with an air of great ceremony, bring these out and show, him, show them
0: and even in this sort of heroic phase of his life he 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 was morally ambiguous wasn't he during the war he shot civilians i think didn't yes. he yes
1: yeah. uh well uh, in one incident um maxwell's platoon um walks into this town in uh what had been occupied france and there's still quite a lot of germans um and german sympathizers there and um, basically to discourage any of the inhabitants of the town from um, taking up arms against his platoon, Maxwell takes the mayor of this town into the public square, the town square, and shoots him through the head.
0: In cold blood.
1: In cold blood. And he also may, there's, it seems pretty likely that he'd also shot a number of German soldiers who had already surrendered. Not at the same time, but a separate incident. There's there's an
0: extraordinary outburst to one of his sons later on, isn't he, where he he talks about shooting people.
1: Yes. I mean, he kind of was, he was troubled by twinges of guilt about it in later life. Certainly at the time, I don't think he had any twinges of guilt at all. Um, But, you know, Maxwell was not an introspective man, um, but very occasionally he would dwell on the past. And, and, and... Whether he genuinely had guilt and sorrow about what he'd done, or he just felt that on some level it was expected of him, is a kind of a moot
0: point. So there we are. Sorry, I cut. I've I've disrupted the chronology a bit by going back, but there he is. This this great uh, uh, treasure trove of unpublished scientific documents lands in his lap it's 1946 Mm. he's in berlin Mm. He's running a newspaper funded by the sis or mi6 or whatever they're called at that point yeah yeah. what happens then he comes back to london and he becomes a publishing magnet
1: yeah he does i mean he's also doing kind of you know typically of maxwell he's kind of ducky and diving on the side so he's 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 dealing in all kinds of weird stuff like kind of oh Animal skins and and I, I'm just stuff that wasn't <laughs> relevant to scientific journals, but funded by British intelligence, he start. He takes over this um, hitherto pretty moribund publishing company and makes it into this enormously successful company. Um, and you know, one of the interesting things about Maxwell is that he's tended to kind of go down in history as someone. Who had no sort of ideological spark at all, who was only interested in making money. And there is certainly some truth in that. But actually, you know, if Maxwell had, say, died in 1961 rather than 1991, we would have remembered him very differently because the research that Maxwell funded um, through the publishing company uh, paved the way for a number of really important discoveries in science. And Maxwell himself actually was extremely interested uh, in this research and was regarded with great veneration by the scientists um, who were essentially within his employ. Um, So it's really, you know, it's something strange, as it were, happens to Maxwell at the beginning of the 1960s And a dark cloud settles over him, which never, ever really goes away.
0: And when did he decide to become an MP? How does that fit into this? Well,
1: Maxwell typically announced that he wanted to be prime minister before he'd actually even become an MP, became an MP. Um, He became the Labour MP for Buckingham in, I think, 1964. And um, he (laughs) claimed that uh, his background made him a natural socialist, um, which was not entirely true. I mean, when Maxwell was on the stump uh, in Buckingham and uh, campaigning to be elected, he would get his chauffeur to drive him in his Rolls Royce from London down to the borders of the constituency, where he would then get into a clapped out old rover, But the chauffeur, still in the full chauffeur's uniform with the peaked cap and everything, would then drive him around the constituency as Maxwell leant out of the window and proclaimed his man of the people credentials. (laughs) Um, And I think that, you know, Maxwell uh, really expected that he was going to be greeted pretty much by a fanfare of herald Trumpeters when he first walked into the House of Commons. But this didn't happen. Actually, he was regarded as a bit of a joke and a colossal blowhard. And he kept giving speeches um, on kind of the the subjects of really very little interest to anybody outside Buckingham. And uh, there are extraordinary instances in in Hansard of Labour MPs, fellow Labour MPs, frantically kind of tugging at Maxwell's jacket, trying to get him to sit down. Um, And uh, Maxwell staunchly refusing and banging on and on and on. but instead of, instead of being um, elected to the shadow cabinet and, uh, and, and treated uh, with the kind of veneration he thought he deserved, the only position of any responsibility that Maxwell was given at the House of Commons was he was put in charge of the House of Commons Catering Committee, um, which he did actually run very successfully. Um, but, you know, his political career essentially came to nothing And it's partly, or actually to quite a large extent, because of that, that he shifted his focus and decided that he could wield as much, if not more, power and influence by owning his own newspaper as he ever would have been able to do as an MP.
0: So the the, the search for power and influence went on. What was his first target? How How did he embark upon this newspaper career?
1: Essentially, how he embarked on his newspaper career is also completely wound up with his pretty much thirty-year uh, titanic struggle with Rupert Murdoch to become the world's most successful media mogul. And um, at Murdoch, um, in back in this was back in nineteen uh, early sixties. Uh, Murdoch was really starting out on his career as a a kind of uh, newspaper proprietor and uh, he was also doing publishing ventures on the side and uh, Maxwell happened to be in Australia uh, flogging some encyclopedias and uh, someone said to Murdoch, oh you really ought to meet this man Maxwell he's you know interesting, a bit unconventional but you might get on with him. So the two of them had dinner and Maxwell said oh, I've got this fantastic new venture to do with more encyclopedias. And uh, essentially, we should go into business together. You give me a million Australian dollars. I'll make you an equal um, partner in the venture. And we'll flog these encyclopedias all over Australia and Southeast Asia and make a lot of money. And Murdoch, by his own admission, was really kind of bowled over by Maxwell and thought, my God, this man really is pretty impressive. And he agreed uh, and that they were going to become partners But before the contract could be signed, Murdoch happened to go out to lunch with a friend of his and he was explaining to him uh, what he'd met this extraordinary man, this great venture they were going to do together. And to his surprise, a friend of his started laughing and and Murdoch said, you know, what's, what's, what's so funny? And it turned out that the encyclopedias that Maxwell was trying to get Murdoch to pay a million Australian dollars for were in fact bankrupt stock that had been offloaded onto Maxwell for free. So Maxwell was basically trying to rip Murdoch off. And Murdoch thought the whole thing was quite funny, um, but vowed never had to have anything more to do with Maxwell and didn't expect to have anything more to do with Maxwell. But in fact, it was, as it were, only the start of their business relationship. And pretty much every time Mer- Maxwell tried to buy a newspaper in the 60s and 70s, Rupert Murdoch got there first. And as far as Murdoch was concerned, Maxwell was just this kind of perpetual irritant that he could never quite manage to brush off. It used to drive Murdoch nuts that that their names were constantly being mentioned in the same breath and that they shared the same initials. Hmm. Um, But as far as Maxwell was concerned, he really came to see Murdoch as this kind of terrible nemesis figure who was out to ruin his life, hmm. and indeed, actually, in in trying to go toe to toe with Murdoch, um, and to prove that he was an equally heavy hitter on the kind of international scene, um, Maxwell really set in train a chain of events which led ultimately to his physical and mental downfall. His 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 what became his posthumous bankruptcy and ultimately his death
0: Hmm. and you interviewed uh, Rupert Murdoch for the book didn't
1: you yeah I did I mean it was one of those extraordinary events where I mean I knew that Murdoch was a crucial person to talk to he'd never talked about it before and I got an email address for someone in his office uh, in New York, and I wrote off an email saying, you know, I was doing this book, and I'd very much appreciated if I could talk to so him. Really thinking there was a kind of million to one chance I'd even get a reply, and to my astonishment, with about, within about an hour, I get an email back saying, oh yes, you know, Mr. Murdoch would be happy to talk to you, um, and you know, sure enough, I went to see uh, Murdoch. Uh, in New York and he was very, very interesting ab- about Maxwell and very open and frank about him. And I mean, yeah, you know, in one sense, yeah, you know, if this had been a boxing match, Murder won every round. So there was no reason for him to be particularly secretive or, you know, um, discreet about what had happened. um, But no, I mean, actually, you know, it was, as far as I was concerned, uh, one of the things that kind of made the book for me.
0: Why do you think, I mean, I don't want to get lost in this, but why do you think Murdoch um, agreed to talk? What, what, What was it about Maxwell that interested him?
1: I think that, in one sense, it was as if Maxwell was the sort of, shadow self of murdoch in a way i mean one you know i'm loath to get too psychological about this but i think that you know murdoch saw himself as an upstanding reasonably well behaved ethical man and he looked at murdoch maxwell and saw this terrible vulgarian who had to kind of dominate any room that he walked into, who had, you know, appalling sort of eating habits and and, and was just generally uncouth. And I think that it really did. I think it, it I think it bothered Murdoch much more than he liked to admit uh when he saw. Maxwell, and it was one of the things that was very interesting when we talked, and 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 uh, Murdoch kept going, oh, you know, it was always personal with Maxwell, and it was never personal with me, and I said, well, you know, actually, is that entirely true? Because in the nineteen eighties, Maxwell tried to buy a the first color tabloid in uh, in the UK it was called Today, and it was run by a man called Eddie really? yeah. Char and um. And Maxwell, despite the fact he was actually running at a terrible loss, wanted to buy it. And typically, of Maxwell, he phoned up Murdoch uh, when Murdoch was in LA to boast that he just bought today. And But during the course of the conversation, he let slip that actually the contract hadn't been signed yet.
0: Mm-hmm. So at
1: the end of the conversation, Murdoch says, Oh, you know, thank you very much for telling me this. And he puts the phone down and he immediately gets on a flight to London (laughs) and essentially not steals, but basically takes today from underneath Maxwell's nose and, and then ends up buying it. And, and, and I, I said to Murdoch, you know, are you really telling me that wasn't personal? And Murdoch said, No, 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 no. It wasn't personal. It wasn't personal. But he couldn't quite stop himself from laughing as he was saying it. So it plainly was much more personal than he really wanted to let on.
0: Gosh. Um, And he used uh, newspaper. He finally got his hands on the Daily Mirror, of course. And at this point, his behaviour had become kind of monstrous, hadn't it? Or had it always been that way?
1: No, I think, I mean, I referred earlier to, you know, things, something really changed in Maxwell at the beginning of the 1960s. And it was partly that he became obsessed with owning a newspaper, an obsession which, you know, history will tell us has often driven people mad. Um, and also there was a kind of catastrophe in his personal life that his oldest son, Michael, who was the heir to the, the empire as it had become, um, was very badly injured in a car crash and was in a coma for seven years afterwards and then eventually died. And um, I think that was a terrible blow to Maxwell, and one that he never really recovered from. And he'd always been quite a kind of draconian father in the 50s, but you know the, the family had been quite happy in, in its own sort of peculiar way. But the atmosphere then get, does get much, much darker um, throughout the 60s and Maxwell, who has been very, he was very happily married, uh, you know, to begin with in the late 40s and 50s, turns on his wife, Betty, um, and treats her appallingly, and really humiliates her in public, Um, and he becomes, at the same time, this having been a really very good looking young man, I mean, you know, there's a document I found in the Czech Secret Service Archive in Prague, which must have been written for someone who was supposed to be following Maxwell when he came on a business trip to Prague in the the 1950s. (laughs) It basically ends up by saying, you won't have any problem recognizing him. He looks exactly like Clark Gable. And indeed, Maxwell was this very handsome man um and th- and yet he just becomes bigger and bigger and bigger uh and by the time he takes over the mirror in 1984 he is gross i mean he's you know he went up to 22 stone um and you and it's as if there was something inside maxwell that had kind of got completely out of control And i mean in a way his the story of his life is like this sort of terrible morality tale of someone for whom nothing was ever enough. And it's as if there was this great sort of yawning void at the heart of Maxwell that no amount of power and influence and money and sex and food and booze could ever plug. And, and it's as if that became... Uh, it sort of... It took more and more of a toll on him uh, the older he became.
0: There was... um there's an extraordinary exchange with mike malloy who was the editor in chief of the mirror who was, hmm. re- relates the story of talking to a psychiatrist friend uh, yeah mike malloy said that he'd he um,
1: he went to uh, a psychiatrist friend of his um and was outlining maxwell's behavior and um and the psychiatrist said um, but i've got you know i've got patients in 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 mental asylums as they then were who are much more sane than Maxwell, and uh, and then essentially predicted that Maxwell would come to this terrible sticky end. I think he actually said he probably would die in a fire or something like this. An explosion, I think. An explosion. Yeah. Sorry, yes, of probably kind of self-combusted explosion. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, and indeed, you know, he really wasn't. Far wrong. And, and, and the psychiatrist said, you know, had he completely alienated his family? To which the answer was yes. You know, did he have delusions of grandeur? Yes. Um, you know, he Maxwell kind of ticked all these, know, as it were, red boxes as far as this psychiatrist friend of Mike Malloy's was concerned. So, you know, in a way he was right. And there was a, to mangle my analogies, there was a fuse kind of smoldering away there mm. um, throughout. Really, throughout the seventies and eighties,
0: and so when he died, um, mm. he was tribute. Great tributes were paid to him by the the great and the good and the not so good. Um, but very, very quickly, within a matter of days, it emerged that he'd left behind a monumental f- fraud. Um, Three hundred and fifty million pounds he swindled, I think, from his pension fund. Is that right? Mm-hmm. What yeah. Did he, what did he do with the money? What What, what was it for? Well, I, what, the one of the things you've got to realise is that you know.
1: 30 years after his death, Maxwell is still regarded in this country, I think, as the kind of embodiment of corporate villainy because he did this dreadful thing, which was to loot the mirror mirror pension fund, thereby depriving a lot of people of the prospect of a reasonably tranquil and prosperous retirement. However, what one has to bear in mind is that Maxwell didn't really make any, uh, he didn't try to hide the fact that when he took over the mirror in 84, that he regarded the pension funds as his own kind of personal fiefdom. And the law at the time was much more fuzzy than we may think. I mean, it wasn't strictly legal to help yourself to money from the pension funds of a company you own, but it wasn't actually that illegal either. And to begin with, Maxwell actually did rather well by the mirror pensioners because the money was invested shrewdly, yielded quite a good return. But as the cracks in his empire started to open out, Maxwell did what he'd always done throughout his business career, but he did it um, more kind of frantically, which was essentially to shift money around from one part of his empire that was doing well into another part that was tottering, so there was this endless round of kind of financial pass the parcel, where he would move money into one bit, and then he would be able to say, "Oh, look at the accounts; yeah, the company is prospering." Literally, the next day would move same sum of money out into another company. Same thing would happen. But what uh, you know, I referred earlier to Maxwell's rivalry with Murdoch was the thing that really ultimately unhinged him and in 1988 so really only three years before he died Maxwell bought the American publishers Macmillan and he paid more than a billion dollars more than the company's own directors thought it was worth Mm. and the reason he did that was because he wanted to go toe-to-toe with Murdoch in America but immediately after having bought Macmillan there was a recession interest rates shot up and from that moment on maxwell was engaged in this kind of increasingly desperate attempt to rob peter to pay paul um but he, he, he you know he just i mean he it was just insupportable and the whole edifice was starting to fall apart
0: gosh and I suppose I mean I could keep going for hours on this but I, I we are almost out of time. How did he manage to fool so many powerful intelligent people for so long do you think? Well, you know, I think that people do as a general rule take
1: you at your own valuation of yourself in life and Maxwell took an you know, attached an extraordinarily high valuation to himself and there were lots and lots of people in the city who just didn't ask very many questions because it didn't suit them to do so. And actually, and Maxwell had a kind of foolproof, but incredibly simple way of um, diffusing any unwelcome inquiries. And he would always tell people, I've got billions of pounds salted away in Liechtenstein, a tax haven. And one of the great virtues of having money salted away in Liechtenstein or any tax haven was that you don't have to provide any evidence that it's there. And so, um, so Maxwell would say, Oh, I've got all this money sorted away in Lichtenstein,' And people believed him. And, you know, and they were doing very well out of Maxwell for a time. Um, and and and, and of course, you know, they are the, the, the same people uh who were queuing up to do business with uh, with Maxwell, then a matter of weeks after he died, the same people were saying, Oh, I always knew he was a wrong and and all the rest of it. So there was colossal humbug and hypocrisy in the city about Maxwell.
0: Well, John, I'm afraid that is all we have time for on this episode. Um, Thank you very much again for joining us um, and very best of luck with the next stage of the prize. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Uh, Thank you again to the Blavatnik Family Foundation for their generous support of this podcast. Uh, Do please Make sure to subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at BG Prize for all the latest on future episodes and news regarding the prize. You can also sign up to our newsletter through the website for updates straight into your inbox. The Bailey Gifford Prize rewards excellence in nonfiction writing and brings the best in intelligent reflection on the world to readers. The winner of the prize this year will, as I said at the top of the program, be announced on the sixteenth of November. Join us next time for another conversation with one of our shortlist authors. Until then, thanks for listening. See you again. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.